Before we get into this week's episode, I want to let you know that the interview contains a number of experiences that some may find upsetting and that may not be fitting for young ears. That being said, I also want you to know that the Spirit can testify to you of the power of enduring trials and that Heavenly Father and His Son Jesus Christ are ever mindful of us. Hello everyone, I'm here with Mary Darlene Sieber. Mary Darlene, welcome to the Ward family. Thank you very much. Just to get us started here, where did life begin for you? Where did you grow up initially? I grew up in the White Mountains of North Conway, New Hampshire. My dad is from Boston and my mom is from Florida, West Palm Beach. Okay. And what was growing up in that part of the world like? Cold. Three quarters of the year is just cold. (laughs) And you learn to live with cold. As a kid, were there certain kinds of activities or things like that that you or subjects in school that you gravitated towards or that you enjoyed as a child I was I'm one of seven I'm the middle child and there's five boys and two girls so you had to learn to fit in with the boys if you wanted to have any good times and all of my brothers played ball when I was the age of ability to play I was one of the first girls in my town to be allowed to try out you had to try out so it was myself my sister and my cousin My sister didn't make the team, I made the team, and my cousin made the other team. So we were rivals the entire summer. (laughs) But we were, my sister's almost two years older than me, so she was going for a different part of a league than me. But it was, we got our names in the paper, we got our pictures in the paper, it was because we were the first girls to play in our town. So it was pretty cool. And what position were you? I was first base, and then I was center field. And I played every inning, every game, and I hit more than... 95% 95% of the times that I got up to bat. Very seldom did I not hit the bat, hit the ball to bat. Wow. My brothers are always just in awe. But the one thing I didn't do very well was defend myself. <laughs> so whenever there was fights, I was the one that would just sit down on the floor and just wait till they were done. I'm not going to join in. <laughs> it was the one, the one difference between my brothers and sister and me. I don't like fighting. And as you were growing up, you're an adult convert to the church. I am. So as you were growing up, was religion a kind of meaningful part of your life, or did that only come later? It was a very big part of our lives. Um, I grew up in a very Irish Catholic family. My dad's um, heritage is right out of Ireland and Scotland. And my mom is from, my grandfather's from the Bahamas. And my mom's mom is from Waycross, Georgia. So they're southern baptist kind of people (laughs) and my dad's family was straight out of boston so they were definitely catholics so we were raised very strictly catholic not pretty we were the the not pretty side of catholics and when you say that do you feel like growing up did you feel a strong connection to god or to kind of a higher being or did you feel like it was just more routine and i don't know it was very very chronological every sunday this is what you did we had the same thing for dinner, Saturday nights. <laughs> Friday night, Saturday, Saturday was all, Sunday was all the same. And Sunday, no matter what was wrong with the world and what was wrong with our family, the pretend robots went into church. <laughs> and you looked and you better look good. Everybody was expected to be your Sunday best and you didn't speak till you were spoken to kind of a thing, which I think is hard for kids. So one thing I love about this church is it's very much children driven because we're all children of God. And this is the first place I've ever been taught something like that. Because in the Catholic Church, and I went all the way through 17 years old, got my first confirmation, or my confirmation, and 
graduated out of there. And the day I finished getting that little record, I never went back to the Catholic Church again. I was done. And I knew that that was going to be my life. The minute they would give it to me, I was never going back. A very unhappy religion for me. Um, my dad was a very abusive man. And no matter what, in the church's eyes, that doesn't matter. It's just accepted where I lived. It was a very small town. But he also had four brothers and five sisters, very large family. They were all kind of the same. They all had either nine, 12, 14 kids, big families. And that's just how it was. I left probably the first time I was taken away from them for abuse was eight and a half, maybe eight and a half years old. And from that point forward, several years back and forth between foster care and there, foster care and there. I think in a small town, it's very different to go through those things because even the police chief looks down at you, the kid. Kids are not supposed to talk. They're not supposed to talk about your parents. But you know when things are wrong. And when I was 11, well, the first time was eight when my dad hurt me really bad. But when I was 11, it was the worst one where I didn't have to go back. There wasn't very much that I understood because I was just a child, but I knew what was wrong. And I had probably the biggest amount of faith in our family because no matter what, every Sunday came and I knew that's what life was like. Every Sunday you got to go to church and you got to pray to God and you got to pray for help and for forgiveness. And at some point it has to get better. It wasn't until many, many years later in my life that I realized how all that really works. And I didn't find out through the Catholic Church how it worked. I was pretty much silenced all the time. So I gave up on them before they ever gave up on me. I lived in a Catholic girls group home when I was in my young teens. Didn't speak to my parents for over a year because they put me in a Catholic girls group home. <laughs> if they'd just sent me out on the street, I'd have been happier. <laughs> I just didn't like being there because it was, I called it the phony life. It wasn't real. None of them made you go to church on Sunday. I went because that's what I knew I was supposed to do on Sunday. Sunday was church day. And I usually walked myself because I lived from there. I was in Manchester, New Hampshire, and I lived in the city. Nobody really cared if you went. They didn't care if you believed in God. They didn't, you didn't say grace at dinner. And I missed that. I missed that about my family because we always ate together, we always prayed together, and we always said grace. So to me, there was some semblance of normalcy with that, even though there was abuse. I just reached a level of numbness about parents and family as opposed to the entity of Jesus Christ and God when I was probably 14. And that's when I had decided when I could get out, when I was done having to be trapped in Catholics who wouldn't talk with me and wouldn't help me and wouldn't help me get help, I wasn't going to do anything. I mean, let's face it, when you're abused, you have to deal with that. No one ever dealt with it. It was just always put her away or put this one away or put that one away. But nobody ever did anything to the parents. And it wasn't my parents. It was mostly my dad. Not a, my mother never witnessed anything. He was pretty good at hiding things from her. But So there's not a lot of blame that would go that way. I forgave my mom a lot faster than I did my dad. I think I'm the only one of my father's seven children who had that conversation with him. I was a mother before I had it. And he couldn't see my children. That was my revenge. And believe it or not, I never even thought of it as revenge until I got myself into therapy, which took a lot. It took a lot. But I got there. I reached it, and I got there. My kids understood, without a lot of conversation, that being around him made you worried, made you concerned. 
so I would never leave him alone with them. But they do know who he was. He's passed on. They do know who he was. They know why they couldn't be with him and why they weren't raised around him. That I always spoke to him because he called me all the time. We always had conversations. He always prayed for me. He would always send me these Franciscan prayer pamphlet things, which I always accepted. Thank you very much, Dad. I know that he loved me in his own way that he knew how. And he didn't have a great childhood himself. So some of this comes from full circle. And I had decided when I was 16 that I was breaking that circle of violence. I'd never laid a hand on my siblings. I'd never laid a hand on other people. I wasn't a person who needed to fight because I'd had enough of that in the home. And even some of the foster homes were rougher than my own, so they weren't good. But as you move on and as you grow up and you go through those experiences, you learn, do, am I ever going to be a good parent? Do I want to be a parent? I don't know. I really didn't know how to do this. But it was never giving up on myself and praying every day and realizing that nobody could take my prayers away. Nobody could squash my relationship with God, my relationship with Jesus Christ. And I learned that in, during my young teens. And I had a lot of friends in school, and they were, some went to the Jewish school in, our, in the city, and some went to um, the Catholic school, and then some went to the high school that I went to. I lived right beside it, so I had to go there. I didn't love it, but I went there. All of them always called me Nun Mary because I was the goody two-shoes. People didn't use dogs out around me. They didn't drink around me. They didn't swear around me. They didn't talk bad about stuff like that. And if anybody ever used God's name in vain, I would write them the worst letters, and I'd just leave them in their locker. You ever use God's name in vain like that again, I will never speak to you. So I became known as the Nun Mary, and let's just not talk to her about those things. But they always wanted me around. Uh, if they were going someplace and doing something, I was fun. I, I learned that somehow, that it was okay to be fun, to be around my friends, even though they, I think, away from their parents were different people. I knew that was never going to be the life I wanted. And the only way that was going to work for me was to keep my structure, to know that if, as long as God is with me, if I'm good, God's never going to leave me. That's literally what kept me alive a lot, a lot. And through this process, there was this challenging situation at home and then in some of these other environments that you were in, in terms of like foster homes and stuff. I had 22 different foster homes. Were, were there any, like, were there certain adults that you felt like had a particularly strong influence on you or maybe... Yes, the last one. ...helped you see <laughs> that there was maybe these a different way to approach things or that there was places where you could draw strength or that they, kind of thing? There was this job opening that came up. When you're 16 and you're in the group home, if you earn a privilege of getting a job outside there, you got trusted, you could do that. Well, I was one of those people, of course, that followed all the straight lines and didn't go the crooked ones. I had a lot of privileges and I had a lot of freedom to do things that they could structurally say, yes, you can go get a job, but this is the hours you can work. So if I wasn't in school and studying, I was working. I went to work for a family. The dad was a family therapist. His wife was a uh, nurse, a surgical room nurse. They had six kids of their own. He worked for what's called the New Hampshire chapter of the powwow agencies for American Indians. And I didn't even know what it was, but it was a job. And it was like secretarial kind of stuff. I had to go in and type up envelopes, addresses and names on things, um, print them out, get them 
you know, put them on envelopes and then stuff those envelopes with pamphlets for when powwows were coming up, when they were having Indian tribal meetings, when the council was coming to town and prepare for those types of things. At that point, I was 15 and I was okay to work because I had a permit, but I could only work so many hours. So he was like always excited when I came because nobody was more willing to work than me. And I think from, from that perspective, he just took a shine to me. And they asked me to come to dinner one night. Well, they had to come to the, to the care center and ask permission, which very much so embarrassed me. And I told them, I don't think that's a good idea because I don't want the other kids that I was in that group home with to treat me differently because somebody took a notice of me because they were very jealous of everybody in there, which was a very different kind of a life. I had a roommate, and which wasn't different for me because I'd never been by myself. I either had siblings or, or a roommate, wherever I was. But this was the first time where I think I started realizing this family likes me as a human being and I don't feel afraid. I don't feel like they would hurt me. But the family, the people that were taking care of me didn't like it. That was the people I worked for and you don't do things like that. You know, Catholics don't run things that way. Well, they were a Catholic family. They were also a Catholic family. And they started splitting hairs. And I finally said, you know, I would think at, at some point you trust me. And they didn't live very far away, so I'm going to go. They ultimately made it my choice, and I said, then I'm going to go. So I got to go to dinner with them, and I told them, like, spilled my guts, told them my whole life story. Because I saw their house. They had four levels of a house, and they had six kids. Parents lived on one floor. The grandmother lived on the back half of that house. And then the other three floors were split between all the kids. And it was the most fascinating thing I'd ever seen in my life. Screaming and hollering laughing, giggling, and the parents spoke French at dinner. They had glasses of wine at dinner, and they did a toast to one another. The kids were all sitting in between this picnic table-looking thing, and the parents were on each end, and Mimi was downstairs. We fed Mimi first, and you always argued over who was going to feed her. It was interesting. So anyway, she didn't speak English. She only spoke French. (laughs) So... We had a hard time getting along with her because she didn't like being left out, but she loved kids and she didn't not want them around. So that was a wonderful thing. I hadn't had grandparents that were very involved with us. Mine lived far away, one in Florida, the one in Boston was always in Washington State or you know, someplace we'd never seen. And when you're that little, you can't imagine where you're going to get to see your grandparents. My grandfathers were both dead long before us, so we just never knew them. Long story short, I fell in love with my foster family. They went to court and sued my parents for me. And by the time I was almost 16, that's where I got to go. So I'd been with them, and they're still a very, very, very big part of my life. I got them to add on a couple more (laughs) during high school, kids that were in trouble. And it was just a fit. It it was like if you had one, 12 wasn't too much either. (laughs) They just let us. They were very open and giving and loving people. They taught me how to vote. They taught me how to stand up for what they called your rights as you turn into adulthood. They were very Democrat, and we I was involved with the first mayor that they knew as when they were growing up and his campaign. My first thing, interest in the politics was that, and this family was just absolutely, John F. Kennedy was king of everything, <laughs> and I didn't know any better. It's like, oh, I don't even know what my family voted for. We never discussed it. Those things you didn't talk about. But this family talked about everything. 
They talked about people's grades. They talked about who was doing good. They talked about who wasn't doing good. And the kitchen table conversation was the, the most wonderful thing every day, breakfast, lunch, or dinner. And it was good. And everybody had a job to do. Everybody pitched in and did what they were supposed to do. Very much different than my own family. The girls did all the work in the house. The boys were always outside the house. And when you were done with the work in the house, you got kicked out and you did outside work too. It wasn't fun. Didn't teach you a lot either. And so once you were through these high school years and so on, what kind of came next for you? I had a lawyer because I was considered a ward of the state. And my father was disabled, so he got money for all of us kids, including himself. And when the state took you, which several other kids got taken kind of things too, the money left with you. Wherever you went, the money went, which we didn't know at the time, but that's what happens. And so my foster parents would get that. They saved it. And the day came when I was a little more than four months away from being 18, my last year of school, which would have been my last year of school, in the summer, the courts gave my father and mother back the custody of me. And it wasn't like we could go to court and fight about it anymore. I wanted to be an emancipated minor. And they worked with me to try to get that done. That didn't work. They just said, no, I had to go back. So I thought, you know, I'm never going back. I'm never, never going to turn back into that life. Because I had tried several times visits, going home and visits, and he would always abuse me. And it, it never got any better. Because he, he never got any help. The only one that had to go to therapy was the kids. <laughs> so I used that to my advantage at that point. I had already had a counselor. And that therapist, through a lot of pain, a lot of agony, at least taught me I was a survivor. That was probably the one most important phrase I learned from that therapist was, this was not your fault. When you're a child and you have abusive parents, you are never to blame. There is not any amount of any, anything you could have done that was that wrong that you deserved it. Just know that, and as you grow up, know that you can break the cycle. And you are okay. You're going to be a survivor. Just keep trying. If you never give up and you hold God in your hands, because God's always in your heart, but if you think you're in trouble, hold him in your hands, and he's going to be there. I had had probably two visions of seeing Jesus Christ in my life before that, that point. And I think because of all the chaos, well, the first time I actually had it, by the way, was, oh, I don't even now remember how old I was, but I was really young old enough to be in school. My father was having a feud with the bus driver. We 45 minute drive to school one way and the bus driver picked us up past our house one day. My father hit the ceiling. He wanted us dropped off at the driveway and it was probably you know, at least a quarter of a mile into our house from the driveway. But he would sit up at the house and watch, see where he dropped us off. And then we got banned from riding the bus. Only dad would come get us from school at that point. One day he came to get us and he left without me. He just left without me. And how was I going to get home? Couldn't ride that bus. Cause I was going to get in trouble if I rode that bus. But nobody at the school understood. They just didn't get it. And it's just in grammar school. So I must have been somewhere between eight and nine. Well, when I got home, my father took an axe handle to me and beat me so bad I couldn't sit, stand, or walk. And it was probably about three days later that I was allowed to go to school, and he took me. Well, I still couldn't sit. And the principal of the school and my teacher, because my teacher grabbed me by the arm, and she grabbed me so hard because I wouldn't sit down, she started to, like, force me to sit down. 
my behind was so beat and backs of my legs were so beat. There was no way I could sit. And here I am in the middle of my school where all my peers are staring at me going, what's wrong with her? That was one of the most humiliating points of my life. And I just wanted to just die. The teacher had said to me, what's wrong with you? Why can't you sit? And I said, because I got punished. And the punishment was so severe that I can't sit. And she said, well, you'll have to sit. You can't stand. She tried to force me to sit down, and I just let out a blood-curdling scream while she turned me over because they could paddle you then and think she was going to paddle me until she saw my legs that were absolutely purple, blue, and welted. Like, I should have been in a hospital. It was that bad. And she actually called the police department and the welfare department and had them come to the school and examine me. The principal brought me upstairs. Of course, all my kids in my classroom had already seen this. So the humiliation was never something I was ever going to live down. And to this day, I'm still friends with every one of those kids, by the way. They're alive. I'm still friends with them. It's something I've learned to get past. They were almost in disbelief. That was the first time I got a lawyer. And when I went through the exam that they make you go through when you're abused in a hospital, it is worse than the abuse you went through by the time they're done. So I cried and screamed through the whole thing, and all I wanted was my mother, who, by the way, never saw me that day when I went to school because he took me. She just wasn't allowed to see us. He would put her in the bedroom, and he would decide who would do what. It was very controlling that way. So when the police told him I wasn't coming back home, he came right to the police department with his hand. He's the person who wore his guns on his little sides and went into the police department wanting his daughter. It wasn't going to happen, at least not that time. So I got to go to the first foster home at that point, and they tried him. He went, we went to court. We had all the kids in court. My mom went to court, and they just didn't believe us. They didn't believe any of us kids. We all told them what he was doing. And all that did was put us back in a more, a more painful environment all over again. And that cycle just kept continuing in our little town. You just couldn't get out until I, I learned to run away. I became the town runaway. <laughs> and sometimes I'd take my little brother with me, the one that committed suicide. Sometimes I'd take him with me. Because I just knew you didn't have to do anything wrong. Just being in his view and he was hurting or something was other bothering him, if he could reach you, you were the one that got it. And there was no winning. Anyway, I had made up my mind I wasn't going to live that way. I wasn't going back to that because there was nothing that had changed. I was the only one that had changed. I had grown up. I had learned how to earn money, how to take care of myself, and I could do it by myself. I didn't need to be with that family. And I'd learned to not miss them. I just figured out it was easier to just throw my life into God and that God would always keep me safe. And he had. He'd kept me safe up to that point. And the first time where I got in so much trouble and he beat me so bad, I thought I would die. I saw Jesus come up from behind the couch and say, I've got you. I have you. You are not feeling any of this. I'm taking it for you. And it literally was the same picture of Jesus that the missionaries gave me when I became a convert. That was the Jesus that I saw, was that picture. And I still have it in my house. That's who I pray to every day. And it was like, I've never seen it before. 
and I had never seen it again until I joined this church. So it was pretty fascinating how things sort of in your childhood come come forward. And I'll, I'll just never forget the feeling of numbness and out of body that you feel when someone is just beating you so bad that you can't you can't breathe. And what pleasure he got out of that or what accomplishment he might have thought he was getting, the hardest part was knowing that he wasn't normal. There was something wrong with my dad. And the only thing I had done to warrant all of this was I got on that bus and I went home from school and I rode that bus when no one else was allowed to ride it. Otherwise, I was going to be this young little girl walking home a long way from school. How was I going to get home? There was a river between me. If I cut the shortcut, it would be going through the river. But I didn't know how to swim. So that was not on my bucket list. <laughs> we weren't going that way. It would have been faster, but those are my choices. Try to cut home through the river or go on that bus, which the teachers and everyone were putting me on the bus because they called home and he wouldn't answer the phone. He just wouldn't. He knew what was going to happen. And I felt kind of in therapy when, it was, when I would talk about that. It was always, she knows what I'm going to do. She knows what's coming. But he made my brothers and my sister stand out there and watch that whole, that whole nightmare. So we all grew up not normal and trying to find some semblance of it. And most of my siblings are either alcoholics or addicts and alcoholics, and they all smoke. Both my parents did. My parents never touched a drop of alcohol in front of us kids. So none of us understood where this hatefulness ever came from. And how on every Sunday, it was all about happy face. <laughs> Let's go in and pretend we're this happy family. Sitting in the front pew. <laughs> Father Dan, here we come. Terrible. It's a terrible way. And I figured I wasn't going to put my family through that. I was going to have children. I was going to have a family. And I was going to be normal. Didn't exactly turn out that way or in that order. But I have a good life. I have had pretty good tragedies in my life that I've learned a lot from. And I think the last 12 years of my life have probably been the most growing, the most learning, the most nurturing, and the most changing for me. It's funny because where I lived, lived in all kinds of different areas of New Hampshire. And then when I ran away the last time, I went to Florida to my grandmother's. And she would have kept me. She would have let me stay there. But my mother's, my mother's brothers are police people. <laughs> so, and I was considered a runaway kid. So they couldn't let me stay there because my dad wanted me back. So they gave me $150 because that was gas money and sent me on my way. I knew the way home. And I knew I wasn't going home. I took that money and I didn't look back. I couldn't stay with my grandmother, but I got to see her. I got to touch her. I got to feel her. I got to hold her. And I told her what dad was doing to us. And I told my uncles and, and my mom's whole family. And my mom was mortified. And I said, well, I have to tell somebody. I'm only a few months away from being 18 and I am never going back there. Not till I'm at least an adult and I can go back and I can get my two little brothers away. Because I have two little brothers that were still there. They needed help. And I had to figure out a way to do that, which I didn't very well do. I wasn't smart enough to figure that part out. So anyway, luckily found myself in a dry county called Darien, Georgia, and I still hadn't graduated high school. I had messed up starting school because I'd run away. I went into the first church I could find, 
the door was open because some of the churches had doors that were locked. Couldn't find a Catholic church there. And I was like, oh, I'm fine. I'm south. I won't find a Catholic church, but I'll find somebody that will take pity on me. Because I was a hard worker. I had enough brains that I could get a job. I didn't have a driver's license, but I knew how to work. So I went into the church and I thought, I'll, I'll offer to do anything. I'll clean the church. I'll, you know, I'll cook for the pastor, I'll, whatever. So I found a Presbyterian church and they found a family that needed a babysitter. And it was within, I don't know, maybe four or five hours of not having any place else to go. I had a very little bit of money left because I didn't spend all my money. Um, I just knew that it wasn't enough to get me back to New Hampshire, that's for sure. And I didn't want to go. So I decided I would give this family a try. I met them, they came, they gave me a place to stay. I took care of their two little boys and the mom and dad both worked and they had a daughter who had, was going to a Christian academy because it was, mm, how do I say this nicely? The blacks could be on this side of the street and the whites could be on that side. There was a public school, but whites weren't allowed to go there. You had to go to the Christian school. And there wasn't a lot of people in town, but everybody went to that church. There was no other church. So I was like, well, at least you know everybody. And there were maybe 50 families that were blacks or other. And I never caught on to why, because where I'm from, there wasn't a lot of black people. We were never taught to be unhappy with other people's, wherever their backgrounds were. We just didn't see them. We didn't have that kind of life. I'd never seen a black person until I ran away to Florida. And I saw plenty. And it didn't bother me at all. They never hurt me. I'd never felt any indifference to any of them. And it was my first experience. And my mom's family were very open to them. My dad, never. I mean, that was the biggest problem my father had. I was going to wind up with some black man. That was never going to happen. He would kill me first. I guess he just figured that was not going to happen. I said, well, it's a good thing you don't know where I am. <laughs> Because I called home. I would call home every once in a while and talk to my mother. And if he would answer, I would hang up, that kind of stuff. Anyway, I wound up finding that family. They worked with me for a little while. And they got me to the point where I could get a hold of the New Hampshire State. And they had all my money. I had to pay to go to this Christian Academy. And this family was smart enough to realize that if I was a ward of the state, somebody's got money. So they got that money for me and they paid them so that I could graduate. I went to that school and I got to graduate. It was probably the most uplifting thing I'd ever done because they kept telling me I would never make it, I would never make it, and I did. I did, but then I got very sick, probably about four months after graduation, and like hospital sick. I don't know what was wrong, but I, was, I had a bleeding issue, and I was in the hospital for weeks. There's no real explanation as to why, other than I was malnutritioned, I didn't have food, I. I was working myself into to the ground. I didn't have those life skills at that point. I had lost that grip. I just knew that I had to stay safe. Finding a place to live and moving out of that family's home was something I had sort of worked on. And I didn't know what I was gonna do afterward. It wasn't a point where you had to have credit to find a place to live, but you had to prove that you had a job. So I had always had a job. and. When you turned 18, as long as you were still in school, which I was, you still got your money. So I wound up getting that until I graduated. Once I graduated, there was no more money. So I had to, had to have jobs, but never seemed to be enough money. And I wound up, um, after I got sick, thinking, 
couldn't, nobody would hire me because I'm so sick. I mean, I literally looked like I was on death's door. So I called my mother and I said, well, I have to come home. I don't have any place else to go. And she said, well, I'll come get you. Well, she didn't come get me. My father came to get me. And I pretty much got locked up into the house for about another nine months. He came after me once and I looked at him and said, if you do, it will be the last thing you ever do. I'm done. And you won't only lose me, you will lose your wife and the two boys, because I'll take them all with me. There will only be one of us that leaves standing, and it won't be you. And he looked at me. I think he understood. I'd been through enough in life that I wasn't taking any more abuse. Don't even start with me. So I left that day, and I never looked back for him. And I went to court a couple times to see if I could help the boys, because I knew he was abusing them too. And you just couldn't prove it, and nobody would really listen to you. I didn't have enough credentials at that point to say I can I could give them a home. They didn't like it. It was the town I grew up in. Same people in the same positions that they were when I left. So I never got very far with that. And you know I hadn't dated anybody, so I was by myself, and that always looked bad. Well, I got two jobs there. I found a girl that one of my brothers knew, and she was looking for a roommate, so I moved in with her, which worked out really pretty fast. And I just started saving my money. I worked all the time and I saved my money. I started dating a local police officer. And I thought, well, it, if nothing else, at least he would be protective. No, bad move. <laughs> he was also an alcoholic. And because at this point, I'm still not a drinker because I haven't been of legal age anywhere I lived. So I didn't, alcohol wasn't a problem for me. My family and I were not close at that point. None of them. And I was very close with my foster family. They would come and pick me up sometimes, and because I had moved back up that way, they would come pick me up and I would go spend time with them. And it was as if I'd never left that family. So to this day, we are very tight. We are very close. And if it wasn't for them, I know many, many a times I wouldn't have survived. My foster dad died in the early 80s, and then she died in the early 90s. And after that, we just got closer unlike my biological family, who are at each other's throats to this day. I have one brother that lives here. He and I get along with levels of, I can only take so much of this, because <laughs> he has a lot of my dad's traits. And I, I have to get away when that starts to come out. It's time for me to go home. I have a home to go to. He was the first person, I think, that understood what I'd been through all my life and how I survived without becoming like the rest of them. I'm not an alcoholic, and I never have been. Never been in trouble with alcohol. I have drank before, but very quickly realized that wasn't for me. I had children, and by the time I was old enough to drink, I had children already. Being married to an alcoholic wasn't going to be helpful. One of you had to be sober. One of them had to take care of the kid. So that person turned out to be me. And my first husband was almost six years older than me, who I thought would be old enough and trusting enough. That did not turn out well. We had one child together who lives in Maine. He's my, my oldest. He's married and he has one little boy, the absolute apple of my eye, and he's a redhead, my little ginger. His name is Kenson. He's just absolutely the light of my life. It's on the other side of the world <laughs> compared to where I live. And he gets to call me Yaya. I don't have to be granny, <laughs> which is fun. I've brought them to the point of Christianity where it was never in their lives before. He's six and for the past five years, his mom 
attends, I can't say she actually goes to the church. I think she lets the people from the church come and visit her, but it's not ours. It's, um, I think, Jehovah Witness. And I said, hey, it brought you further to Christ. To me, it's all going to go in the same soup bowl. <laughs> Eventually, we're all getting in the same place. And I, I believe that with all my heart. It doesn't matter what your faith is, as long as your faith is pure in God and that you know that Jesus Christ is your Savior. Those are the two main factors in life. She and I are very close. I love her very much, my son's wife. And she's a wonderful mom. She's a nurse, too. Then I have the twins. They were in the service for 10 years, both of them, one in the Marines and one in the um, Air Force. Now they're out and running their own lives. They've all got their own homes, and they all say, when are you coming back? I have no desire to go back. I go visit every year or every other year for a couple days, but that town they all live in just brings me down. There's nothing happy there. There's nothing good there. There's only pain and anguish and trouble. No one ever helped me, so it's not a place I want to return to. My mother moved back. She was living here, taking care of my nephew and living with my brother. And when my husband passed away, my last husband, um, Kyle, was my best friend. When he passed away, I was lost. I was just lost. And I wound up coming out here because I'd never spent one night by myself. All of a sudden, my husband had died three months before the twins graduated school. And they had spent, they turned 18 in October and graduated that following June. And the night of their graduation, these drill sergeant people walked up to me in these uniforms, and they were maybe five feet tall. And they said, thank you for your service, Mrs. Sieber. Stay by your phone tonight and um, don't go to sleep. Your children will call you when they arrive at their destinations. If you miss the call, they won't give you another one. It'll be a long time before you hear from them. Now, this is someone who's never been without her kids. Just dealing with now a, a widow with two kids, but they're 18. They could do what they wanted. Little did I know that my husband and them, my husband's mom was a Marine, and the kids had said, this, was what, this is what we'll do for mom. This will be our surprise for her when we graduate. He and they went through the process of signing them into the service without anything to do with me. Do you think I would want to have something to say about that? Absolutely. But I didn't, and it never would have occurred to me that they would have gone to the service. But they knew I didn't have the money to put them through school. There was no way I could put them through college, and they didn't want loans. And they said, this is how we can get through school. But I never saw them at graduation. The drill sergeants took them right from the, the row. They got their diplomas, and they walked them out of the back door to a bus. And I never saw them. I had a party. I had everything planned. All my foster family and my other family was coming. It's usually never a big mix, but the kids graduating. That was a big deal. So we had the party without him. I cried the whole time. Everybody stayed, though. <laughs> and then I lost it. The, the few days go by where you're alone in a house that was full of love and life and screaming and yelling and hollering and give me that coat. Now that's my brush. Give me my comb. And there's nothing. Dead silence. I couldn't stand the silence. And as much as I prayed and as hard as I prayed, I could not stop crying. And I wasn't even sure if I was even done grieving the loss of my husband. And now I've lost all the kids. <laughs> so I'm like, what am I supposed to do with myself? Well, I called my brother who lives here with my mom. And I didn't talk to my mom. I talked to my brother. And I just said, I think this is probably the lowest part of my life. I think I could probably commit suicide today. I just can't live like this. I don't know where the kids are. I don't know how to find them. I don't know if they're, if they're safe. 
And they did this. They wanted to do this. They wanted to leave me alone. I do not do alone very well, Edward. And he's like, so why do you think you're going to kill yourself? And I said, I don't know, because I don't know what else to think. And I was so clouded with pain that I couldn't even see Jesus anymore. I couldn't see that that little figure that that just would always bring me back. And I thought, wow, this is pretty bad. And I think that's why I picked up the phone, because he's the only brother out of all five of them that I could have said something like that too, that would know I really didn't mean I meant to hurt myself, but I felt that low inside, that worthless, that unneeded. And I said, I had a great job. I was the lead teacher of 24 infants. They were from three weeks old to 13 months old. And my job was to take care of all of them. And I had three people that worked under me. That was my career. That was my job. And I couldn't do it. I couldn't get myself out of bed to go to work. And of course, that wasn't going to work very long because your boss is like, oh, yeah, guess what? (laughs) I need you here. (laughs) How much time do you need to grieve? And I'm like, I don't know. I don't even know if that's what it is. I was grieving the loss of my husband and now the loss of my babies. I'd raised those kids pretty much by myself. My husband and I got married. The twins were already almost 10. They were my life. And I just felt like somehow God was catching up to me and I was getting punished for all these things I don't even, can't even tell you what I had done wrong, but that he knew. He always knows. He keeps a list and he knows what you're doing wrong and what you're doing right. This was not Santa Claus. This was reality for me. And my brother just, and I said things like that to my brother. He says, are you drinking? Because he knew I didn't. And I said, no, I didn't even have anything in the house. I didn't even think of that. I said, should I go get something? Should I get a glass of wine? Maybe I'll feel better. And he goes, no, you won't. Don't do that. He said, I'm going to get you a plane ticket. He said, I just want you to know that you'll be safe. He said, don't go, to, don't go out of the house. Just stay there. Um, I'm going to send, because I had foster family that was living close by. And for some reason, I didn't call any of them. I think because I didn't want them to ever see me that low, to, to be at such a point of despair. I can't get out. I at least still had a living mother. They didn't. Their family was gone, and you know their parents were gone, so all they had was each other. And I thought, they all had issues with their children at that point, and I couldn't burden them any further. This was a point in my life I should have been on my own. And I suddenly was lost. And nothing seemed to be pulling me back. So my brother got me the ticket, and I literally walked away from my life in New Hampshire. I just walked away from it, and I came here. I just started over. It probably took me a good six months to just not feel numb anymore. And he made sure I went to my kids' graduations, but going to the graduations was nothing that I anticipated. My son's graduation was at Paris Island, North Carolina. My daughter's was uh, San Antonio, Texas. At, you know, triple digits. <laughs> That's where we want to go. That was a nightmare. But it was, they're still never coming home. They're gone. I'd reached that level of intelligence somehow, but in an outside experience of life going, your kids have grown up. You've done your job. What are you going to do with the rest of your life? I had no idea. I didn't know how to do that, but I knew I couldn't, I didn't do well by myself. I was afraid to be by myself. Not that I was afraid to hurt myself, but just because I had never done that. And I had spent, what, only three days by myself in New Hampshire. And (laughs) it wasn't like the kids could come and protect me. It wasn't like they could help me. I had to figure it out. 
And I had lost probably a week or so of not praying. I just didn't pray. I didn't think. I couldn't function. And that's what scared me, and that's how I got so low. And that's why I know you never let Jesus go. He doesn't let you go. You don't let him go. So when I got here, I went through a good six months of trying to find a church to go to. I knew that much. I went to all kinds of churches around here. Only I lived over on the other side, so I never saw this one. I didn't walk this way. I stayed that side. So I went to all the ones that are over there, like Magdalena and the Catholic one over there, which was hard to walk through the door because it was Catholic. <laughs> but it was Jesus was in there. At some point, Sunday comes and Sunday goes. I even went to two that were Asian. Couldn't understand anything when I was there. I was like, it's okay. He's here somewhere. Just searching, searching, searching for what I was supposed to be doing, and I didn't know. And at my age, I was 45. I should have known. I had a plan, Greg. I had a nice plan with my husband. When the kids graduate in a few months, this is what we're going to do. And it all fell apart. And I think I never thought that would happen to me. Starting over from that age was probably the biggest trauma that I had had to face in my adult life. Everything else was always, I always, God had it. It was good. But because I had let go of that boat, I had let go of God, I was lost. And I don't think he thought for a second <laughs> I wasn't lost to him. I was lost because of myself. So anyway, I got back, got back on track. I got kicked out of a couple of churches around here because when they find out you're divorced or you had children out of wedlock, which I had both of those happen to me, they wouldn't let me work with their kids. And that crushed me, crushed me. I couldn't get a job working with kids out here. None of my credentials worked in this state. They basically would saying to me, because I, I tried really hard to figure out how to get a job working with kids, because that's all I knew. And I felt I would feel so alone if I could go back to that. But I didn't want to move back to New Hampshire where I was, where they kept telling me, you could just come back and live with us and we'd give you a job. I didn't want to live with someone else. I wanted to find a way to be on my own. And I knew that this was God's way of telling me, this is the place you can try. This is where you're going to find your peace, and this is where you can do it. And that much I could hear. I could still hear God telling me. And at that point, I was just listening. And I hadn't shut it out any longer. It was like, I know he's trying to tell me. So I did. I went to tons of churches. Two of them I got basically, don't come back. And I think that probably was more harmful to me than good, more harmful to them than it was for them to do it to me. Because I've run into those people in public places before. They want to try to help the homeless. They want to try to help people who are looking for services. Much so different than what our church services people when they try to help people. I learned very quickly that it was the wrong church. All of them don't serve Jesus Christ's purpose. And when you realize that, you're, you're going to be in that search. I was there. I was finally at the point of, okay, I have to go to church on Sunday and I have to go to a place where I'm loved and I'm welcomed. So I opened up my computer one day, my brother had gotten me one, and said, I think a pop-up window, one of those little pop-ups came up and said, if I wanted a free Bible, click here. So I absolutely, I left everything behind. I didn't have anything. I mean, I came with a bag. I clicked on it, I filled out the form, and it said it would arrive in person within three days. And I thought, oh, another gig, another trick. Somebody's gonna, you know, not gonna get a Bible. Not that I needed it at the point. I think it was just, it was free. All right, free. I liked that, and it was the Bible. King James Version, I'll take that. It wasn't the Bible, it was the Book of Mormon. And two lovely young men came up to my little sidewalk where I was living and introduced themselves as being from the 
Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I'd never heard of it before. And I should have. Throughout my life, I've lived in places where I should have heard of the church, and I never had. And if I had, it isn't in here. It, it's not in my little memory. And I just looked at them and thought, God, you can't be more than 12 years old. Does your mother know that you're out here selling books? <laughs> and of course, Elder Silos looked at me and went, I am much more than 12. And I'm like, there's no way you're more than 12 years old. And he's just looking at me, he's going, I am. I am of legal age. <laughs> and the gentleman with him, he actually looked a little bit older, but he was smaller, Elder Myers. And he's like, oh, I'm older than him. <laughs> Don't even go there, I'm older than he is. And he goes, did you ask for a Bible? And I said, I did. And they had the Book of Mormon. And I said, that's not a Bible. And I got educated pretty fast. <laughs> I said, not only is it a Bible, we'd like to come and teach you about Jesus Christ. Have you ever been baptized? And do you believe that Jesus Christ lives? And I said, yes and yes. I've been baptized a bunch of times because I went to different churches at all kinds of different points in my life. I think they needed to have a little more information from me. And I, of course, knew none of the rules about them. I'm trying to have them come in my house and this and that. And they're like, no, no, no. And then, of course, I got a little skeptical. And I thought, well, if they can't come in my house and act like normal people, is this church going to be normal or am I going to be ousted again because I came from a broken family? And that's what I felt, very broken. That's probably the one thing that I didn't understand back then. And Elder Carpenter was the third missionary that wound up working with them with me while I was learning about it, with two of the most honest-looking human beings I'd ever seen in my life. I did think they were 12 <laughs> for days. I was like, there's no way they're that old. <laughs> they just looked super young, uh, but very well-spoken. They could recite scripture that I knew, I knew was in my mind, that I had totally left, you know, when, in my crazy chaos of life. I had forgotten so much. But these, they could just recite things, and I thought, gosh, I know that. I know that. And then I went through some of Jeremiah. I went through Nephi. By the time I got to James, I figured out that this was the place I had to be. And they were like, do you want to come to church? Do you want us to introduce you to some of the sisters in our church? Because that's what they're called. They're called sisters. And I thought, oh, I would love a sister because my own sister never liked me, was never good to me, and never ever is going to be good to me. She's, she's lost to me. And I thought, I have four foster sisters that are just absolutely stringed to my life. And they're still staunch, never going to church again. <laughs> I'm Catholic, which I taught, I feel is totally a hypocrite thing to say. You're either a practicing anything or you're not. And you can't say that I'm Catholic if you don't practice Catholicism. None of them understand that, but that's my heart. And I thought, that's why I go to church all the time. Because then nobody can say that I'm not practicing something. I'm practicing, I'm worshiping God. No matter what, I'm worshiping God. Bad things can't happen to you if you think that way. And you try and live a good life. And I thought, well, I'm not a bad person. I'm just trying to get the good out of whatever that is and find my purpose. Because my purpose for my life that I thought was my purpose had suddenly all left me. I had no husband, I had no children, and I'm all by myself. <laughs> and that was my third marriage. So I wasn't looking for that again. I was like, no, I've done that three times, three strikes, you're out. How about finding God? Let's just focus on God and, and get that part in your life straight. And I think that's probably been my saving grace, is knowing that's where I have to start. And hey, I mean, it's 12 years and I'm still here, <laughs> still in this church. Being, becoming a convert to the church wasn't at all a stretch 
it wasn't at all hard. So many of the things that are taught and that are followed, and I mean, through the centuries and centuries of knowledge that, that is a huge gift, I mean, I was very well received, and I'd never had that before in any church. Not that well. I mean, I think Ann Packett, I'll never forget her. She was the first person that walked up to me with all these open arms and this great big smile. Hey, somebody new! Let me tell you who I am. <laughs> she was a delight. And of course, the first time I came to church, I asked them, what do I have to wear? Because different churches expect different things. And they said, no, just whatever's comfortable for you, you can wear and you can come. That's when I kept saying, no, I know that you're 12. Because anyone older than that would have known to tell this old woman here, don't wear pants. <laughs> the ladies wear dresses and skirts. The gentlemen wear pants and suits. And they, did, they skipped that part for me. So I came in slacks the first time, never again. And I've never done it again. And I've always felt awkward if I see people in them in church. It's really funny because I'm like, that's a no-no. It's like, well, it doesn't really matter. It's not my, not my decision to make. It's their decision to live with. But it's got to be a little uncomfortable knowing that's not what we do. But I've always, always loved the fact that nobody told me what to do. I got to find it all out for myself. Very much unlike the, the Catholics that I had always known. And the Catholic, the foster family that I had that was Catholic was very different than my own family that was Catholic. This family was, you could be as rotten as the day is long and make all the mistakes the life is long. You still go to church on Sunday and you still ask for forgiveness and you get up and you try again the next day. That was how they treated it. Never beat me, never punished me, never starved me, never put me under the closet and created these traumas for my life that led into a very um, sheltered world. I didn't even know what to do with freedom when I actually got it. So it was really hard to try to be anything but normal because I knew I never wanted to see the other side of bars, never wanted to go to jail. And that meant I needed to have some kind of a wholesome life. And that was only going to happen through God. So trust me, could have gone any other direction of this world because I've watched my family all fall apart. That's probably why I don't have the greatest relationship with my sisters because I didn't let that happen to myself. I've been down, I've been kicked down 100,000 times, but I keep getting back up, stone cold sober. No drugs, no alcohol, no cigarettes, no caffeine. I even stopped drinking coffee before I joined the church. Lo and behold, it isn't something they do. <laughs> but I'm still curious, Greg, why they have chocolate on their menu. <laughs> Get has lots of caffeine. Uh, open to interpretation, mm -hmm. but... Uh, yes, Brother Blake well, include me in that. Because I asked, yeah. I said, but we get to eat chocolate. How is that, Brother Blake? <laughs> Becoming part of the church has been probably the best part of my adult decision-making that I've made for myself in my entire life. The one right thing I think I've ever done. I will wholeheartedly say <laughs> that I am so glad that you made that decision and that just over the last number of years that I've had a chance to get to know you, to have you be a part of you know, my life, be part of our ward family and just our broader stake. Uh, you know, I know we've been in a few different wards with boundary changes yeah. and yeah, as you know, change doesn't always go well for me. Yeah, and so <laughs> I'm, I'm just so glad that you're part of our ward family. And and I also just want to say, you know, for this interview, just thank you for sharing what you've shared and 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 being you know vulnerable in that way. And and um, you know, I think giving people a glimpse as to some of the things that you've gone through in your life. And, um, and I just think it's, 
an amazing example to in terms of your point in terms of you know life throws all kinds of different types of challenges at yeah. people and you there's know, not I much think, that's missed me <laughs> yeah and I think it's just a real testament to you that yeah. you've gotten up you keep getting up and you keep you know dealing with those things and well, that you've and that you draw I strength from God in the process I do. and I think that's so it gets me you know, I don't go to work in a bad mood. I don't think I've ever gone to work in a bad mood. I work for the greatest people I've ever known. And it's funny because I used to work for people and every one of them belonged to the church. Little by little, they're all gone and I'm the one left. Ten years later, still in the same place, but I love what I do. It makes me happy to, to make other people's lives better, to make them smile, to make their, their overall health better. My kids understand that now. It's taken me a little while to get through, but they're happy that I'm happy. And they're well, grateful that I didn't turn the opposite direction because it very easily could have been. And for lack of a better way of saying this, I think it, out of anyone I know, I think you deserve happiness at this point in your life probably you. more than most. So yeah. I'm really glad that you're there. And thank you for being a part of this. You know, I hopefully people um, have found, found it helpful and, you know, they'll They'll, uh, you know, come say hi and get to know you if they haven't already met you before within our ward. 